Okay, so now we are in Leviticus 16. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Every Sunday, uh, we open God's word together. We go through the Bible. Uh, we look at a passage. We examine it. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we print the passage out on in your bulletin as well. There's a sheet that has the passage. If you want to work through that with us at the same time and know uh, where we're coming from, that is to be useful for you. So, uh, so two weeks ago, uh, I kind of proposed this idea to you, this idea that comes from Scripture, which is uh, that sin is both activity and atmosphere, right? That, that sin is what we do, but then there's also the reality that when we kind of disobey God or when we uh, kind of do the things that we ought not to do or when we harm our neighbor, that it doesn't just kind of consist of that activity, but every sin contributes to an overall atmosphere of sin. So that we could even look back at the beginning in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God and what they did, God said, if you sin or if you do what I tell you not to do, you will surely die, meaning you will let something into creation that was not supposed to be there, right? So when they sinned, death and disease entered into creation. It is not sinful to have a disease, but disease is the result of an atmosphere of sin. So that's the kind of concept that we talked about. So sin creates the context for things like disease and corruption. It includes things done in our world, but it also includes the condition of our world. And so with that in mind, I kind of want us to think of sin like baggage. Right? Every time we sin, we contribute to the corruption in and around us. We load another garment into the bag. We load another bag onto our back. Right? That's the kind of concept that scripture would speak of. And it's probably not news to you that the baggage of sin accumulates over time. Like the more you do it, the more you load onto your back, the more you load up into places that cannot bear the weight of the things that you load onto them. You load it onto you. You load it onto your family, you load it onto your community, and you load it onto the spaces that you inhabit, and it weighs you down. I bring that up because the metaphor of baggage is going to be really useful for us as we move into today's conversation. So we're in a new series. This new series is called Not of This World. We're moving into the next section of the book of Leviticus, and in this section is all about how God's people are called to be holy. Now, that word holy uh, is confusing sometimes because it can make you think like, oh, I think I'm better than other people, right? And that's not what the word holy is about. Holiness is about difference, about otherness. It's about being set apart, right? That's literally what the word means. But for our purposes, we might as well think of the word holy as otherworldly. Right? Not of this world. And so, uh, so God's expectation to his people is this. You will be holy as I am holy. Right? I am otherworldly and I want you to be otherworldly. You will be set apart. You will be different. And so today in Leviticus 16, we're going to discover a key way that God wants his people 
to be different. Now, Leviticus is written to his people Israel. We are not his people Israel in the terms that he was writing to them in. We are people in Jesus. We are in Christ, which means we have been set free from all of the boundaries of what is called the law. Leviticus is in the law, right? So uh, it's going to give us a bunch of instructions today, and I'm here to tell you that we're not about to uh, go and start following all of the instructions that it gives us and every detail that it lays out for us. But what it's showing us is principles. It's pointing us to things that God has had in mind the whole time from the very beginning. Okay, so God's people will be different. And today we're talking about the baggage of sin. God's people are going to be different in how we handle the baggage of sin. So Leviticus 16 is all about the Day of Atonement. Last week I talked to you about how Hebrew people uh, think and how they write and how they uh, put the most important thing in the center. Right? So, uh, so the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Jewish people, most of them, they, they recognized that the Torah kind of was their most important scriptures. They called it the law. It's what they based everything on. Well, if you go to the middle of the Torah, of the law, of the Pentateuch, right, uh, in the middle of it is the book of Leviticus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the book of Leviticus, like all of it is important, right? But it's making a main point in the book of Leviticus. And if you go to the center of the book of Leviticus, you end up at Leviticus 16, where we are today, the day of atonement, which means that while everything in the first five books of the Bible are important, the most important thing is being said in what is covered today in Leviticus 16. So Leviticus 16 opens in verse 1 and says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. If you remember, Aaron's two sons, they brought strange fire into God's sanctuary. They did what they were not supposed to do. They disobeyed God's commands and they were supposed to be priests, right? And so God, uh, God when they came in and they did the wrong thing, God consumed them. Fire came out from where God was and consumed them. It killed them. And now what you have is a problem. You have death inside of God's sanctuary, inside of the tabernacle, and that's not a good thing, right? God is not, God is life. He does not like death being near him. He was trying to avoid death being near him, but now it's there. And so, so what happened with the death of the sons of Aaron is that you have now the tabernacle being corrupted. Right? You have the accumulation of sin as baggage. And it, by the way, it's not just what they did that was sin, but you have all of the sin that's being committed in Israel. Right? The high priest is a sinner. And on him is accumulating the baggage of his own sin. And uh, by the way, the way the Bible looks at this is not just that the people accumulate baggage on themselves, but God has set his, like, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where his presence sits, the tabernacle, the most holy place, like all of these things are in the middle of his people Israel. And what God is thinking is that as my people Israel sin, baggage is accumulating on these holy things too. Like the, the atmosphere of sin is corrupting these holy things. Their baggage is being stored in my house. They're kind of loading it up and sticking it in there. And they're, they're kind of leaving their stuff. Anybody, uh, any uh, older parents in here who have kids who just leave their stuff in your house? Yeah? I want to tell you this morning, God hates to let us store our baggage in his house. 
He does not like that. And so he's going to address that in Leviticus 16 too. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place. He's not saying never come. He's saying that there is going to be a specific time that you come. Not to come at any, any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So just so we understand what's happening here. Anytime we see holy place up on the screen in this translation, that's referring to the place called the Holy of Holies. That is the place that we are to think of as God's presence dwelling. Like that is where it is. It exists behind a veil. The presence of God. He lives behind a veil. And the the priest, in fact the high priest, could only go into where God is one time a year. Right, so, so this is where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The, that Ark, by the way, has a lid. On that lid is a sculpture of a throne. That throne has angels on each side. And what that throne is saying to the high priest who goes in there once a year is that that is God's throne. And that is where God sits, right? That is where his presence is. That's what the high priest is thinking. And so God said, hey, you're going to light some incense. I'm going to appear in the cloud that's over the sea. I'm going to sit on my throne in this place. And so if God shows up and you have not adequately dealt with your baggage the way that he tells you to deal with your baggage, he gives this warning. You're going to do this in this way by my commands so that you may not die. Right? Because if you do it any other way, if you do it according to how you think it should be done, you're going to die. And so that's, that's what is given to the high priest to do. Now, so we just understand how this works. When God's people come to worship, they come into the courtyard. The courtyard is like a big rectangle inside of the midst of the camp of the people of Israel. Inside that big courtyard is a smaller rectangle that we call the tabernacle, right? And so, so that is like a tent that's, that's blocked off. Nobody can see what's inside the tent. The only people who can go into that tent are the priests, Inside that tent is a smaller rectangle that has a veil on it. And that is what we call the Holy of Holies or what you will see up here as the holy place. And that is where Aaron is told to go. And verse 3. And this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd. That's his own herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So God is saying I'm going to make a, a, a way for my people to approach me in the place that I actually am. Like there's not going to be a veil separating me and my people. But here are the protocols. It's not often that the high priests are told that they need to bring animals for themselves, but in this case, the high priest is told that he needs to bring something for himself. In this case, the high priest needs to bring his own Offering. So verse 4, it says, He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment under his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban and the, or, that are the holy garments and he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. So I want you to just kind of take your mind out of like, what is the checklist that has to be performed? We tend to read this like, okay, check the things off of the box. I don't want us to read it like that. I want it to, us to read it like it's telling us a story. Right? It's taking us through the process of the day. The first part of the story is he's going to come in. He has sacrifices to bring. But then the second part of the story is he ha he's going to wear something different than he normally wears. 
The high priest, normally what he wears is all of these jewels. He's very bedazzled. He has this breastplate that looks amazing. He has this uh, golden plate on his head that says, holy unto the Lord. Right? All of this is meant for the high priest to represent himself to the people so that when the people see the high priest, they see him as a representation of God. They don't think that he's God, but they see him as representing God. On this day, the only thing that he wears is linen cloth. That's it. Because on this day, he is not representing the people to Yahweh. On this day, the high priest represents, sorry, he is not representing Yahweh to the people, but on this day, he is representing the people to Yahweh. On this day, the high priest represents a broken and sinful people. He clothes himself in linen because he is not conveying something holy to the people. He is conveying something humble to the Lord. That's what he's doing. Verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people two male goats for a sin offering, one for a ram, uh, and one ram for a burnt offering. So he has to bring his own sacrifice. He has to bring a sacrifice for the people. And then in verse 7, this is what's interesting about the two goats that he gets from the people. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot is for the Lord. And the other lot is for Azazel. So, uh, so the Lord, anytime we see Lord, capital L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's giving us God's divine name, the name that he has identified himself by to the people of Israel. We call it Yahweh, or it's the I Am, right? That's how God, that's the name that God has given to his people. And one of these lots, one of these goats, is going to be for the one who calls himself Yahweh. And the other one is going to be for Azazel. The word Azazel literally means, it's two words put together in Hebrew, it literally means strong God. We need to be careful when we're reading the Bible that as we read it, we don't reject the Bible's worldview. The Old Testament frames God's rescue of his people as a war against spiritual beings, as a competition with false gods. We call them demons, right? Fallen angels. But at that time, pagan religions gave them names. So if you go back and you read the book of Exodus and you look at the plagues of the book of Exodus, you can look at every single plague and look how it was like a direct assault on specific gods in Egypt, right? Isis, Osiris, Horus, right? And, and these uh, gods are territorial demons. They've enticed the people who live there to give them names and to worship them. Right? And so as, they, as Israel now moves into the land that they've been promised, you have uh, gods called Baal and Asherah and El and Molech. All of these gods are there. And all of this, these are spiritual beings who have territory, who have place, who are worshipped by people. This is how the Old Testament sees the world. Right? And all of this harkens us back to Genesis when God gave Adam and Eve authority over creation and they were meant to rule over creation in relationship with their creator, loved by him, connected to him. But there were two voices in that garden that spoke to Adam and Eve. There was God's voice and there was the voice of the serpent. And Adam and Eve decided to listen to the voice of the serpent. And when they did that, they handed authority over creation, over creation to the serpent and to all who went with him. 
And he became essentially a ruler over creation. So we're meant to see the Old Testament like this. Your translation, as you read that word Azazel, if you're reading a different translation than we are this morning, you might read something like scapegoat or something along those lines. But quite literally what God is doing is he is naming a false god, a demon. And he's saying, one goat is going to be for me. And one goat is going to be for the strong God out in the wilderness who represents the evil spiritual beings. So uh, verses 9 and 10. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, just so we get like a refresher and we see the imagery that's happening. Where was Jesus driven in order to encounter the temptation of Satan? He was driven out into the wilderness. So just reading this in order without jumping ahead, I, I, I can't help but think that the Israelites have a few questions. Right? It makes sense that Yahweh gets a sacrifice. That kind of fits into their framework. But why does strong God get a sacrifice? Like, I thought Yahweh was holy, that he alone is to be worshipped. Why are we sending a valuable animal out in the wilderness to this one called strong God? Now, that's an important question, and we're going to discover the answer to that question as God elaborates on what's happening here. So all of that is an overview. Now God gets into kind of the details of his instruction. So the first thing he's going to talk about is the sacrifice that needs to be made to him. So verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. What this pinpoints to us is that we're already dealing with a faulty system, right? The person who is interceding for the people is himself a broken person, is himself a sinful person. He has his own baggage that needs to be dealt with. And so he comes and he has to make a sacrifice. So uh, just so we understand what's happening with sacrifice, real quick refresher, um, we have sin, we accumulate the baggage of sin on us. The sin welcomes in death. God says, you need to sacrifice an unblemished animal. Right? And the reason that you need to do that is because in the blood of that unblemished animal is life. Now, don't ask me to tell you why there is life in that blood. All I know is that God says there is life in that blood. Right, So we accumulate death, but God says there's life in the blood of an innocent animal. And so they sacrifice the innocent animal and they take that blood. And what they do with that blood is they sprinkle it on the implements in the holy place. They sprinkle it on the implements in the tabernacle. They, uh, and then they pour it out at the base of the altar. That blood is intended to go over everything in the tabernacle, in essence, to clean the death off of the implements, right? Your baggage has been accumulating in my house, and now we have to kind of wash your baggage off of my house. We have to get it out of my house. And so every time a sacrifice is made, every time blood is sprinkled, it's dealing with the baggage that we've accumulated to cover it over, the death, to cover over our death with the life of an innocent thing. And so, uh, so step one of the Day of Atonement process is this, that the high priest's baggage was covered. That's step one. 
So then step two, in verse 15, it says this. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. So the second step of the day of atonement process is that the people's baggage was covered. Covered over with life. So then it moves on to the next step in verse 16. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place. It's not, he's not just making atonement for the sins of the people and the sins of himself. He's making atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. So then what, what he does, he, he sprinkles the blood over the tabernacle, over, the, over the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, over all of the implements inside the sanctuary. And then he comes out and he does the same thing on the altar that's outside the tent where everybody can see it. Right? There's just blood everywhere. I mean, that's the, the imagery that we get right now. Because our death has accumulated on God's things. And so the third thing that we see is that the residue of sin is cleansed. That's the third step of the Day of Atonement process. He's washing off the residue of sin from all of these things that he has called holy. So what is the message so far? I want you to take note. Verse 16, so you remember that thing about the, about the center? What's at the center is the most important thing? Verse 16 is the center of the center of the center of the center of the Torah, right? It is, so if we could think of like the fewest words that God would have to say, he's saying, hey, here is the most important thing I have to tell you about my law. It is what is said in verse 16. Thus he shall make atonement because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. Right, what is at the center is not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are important. I want you to know that. But the Ten Commandments are not at the center. The Exodus event where God saved his people Israel out of the land of Egypt, where he came and rescued them, that is important, but it's not what's at the center. At the center is a message. God makes a way to deal with our sin so that we can have relationship. That is the central message of the Torah. God makes a way to deal with our sins so that we can have relationship. Right? God has come to a sinful people and made a way for their sin to be atoned for so that a sinful people are able to have relationship with a holy God. But then we would have a sub-point from that as we think about 16 and its implications. The sub-point is this, that we cannot leave sin overlooked and undealt with. We can't. Something must be done about it. Right? It's corruption. We are threatened to die if we don't deal with it. Either number one, because God could lash out against us like he did with Nadab and Abihu, or number two, because God, if we let our baggage accumulate for long enough, God could decide to just leave us here in the wilderness to fend for ourselves. And so if you want to love and follow and worship a holy God, you need to be able to grasp the gravity of sin and deal with it. 
Right? Don't let it accumulate. Don't carry the baggage around. Actually deal with it. Okay, so then, verse 20, he goes further. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. This is the goat. When they cast lots, one goat was for Yahweh, the other one was for Azazel. This is the goat that's for Azazel. This is the goat whose existence in the ritual up to this point is very confusing for us. We don't get it. So verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all of their sins. Aaron is taking the full list of Israelite sin and he confesses every part of it. When we see iniquities, transgressions, and sins listed all together in a close space, the point is he was making a comprehensive confession. Everything that might be considered sin, he was bringing it and listing it as he had his hand upon that goat. Right. So, so to the extent that he is aware, he is confessing individual sins. He is confessing corporate sins. He is confessing sins of omission, sins, that, uh, sins where we don't do the thing we're supposed to do. He is confessing sins of commission, things where we do what we should not do. He confesses all of it. So let's talk about confession. Confession is, in its simplest form, making a statement of your agreement with God. Right, so confession of sin, then, is agreeing with God about your sin. Right? God, I agree with you that this is opposed to your will. That this displayed poor character. That I have neglected my neighbor. But that's not all. The word confession does not contain, like it is not enough simply to state your agreement. Right, if you're confessing, what it also means is that you're agreeing with God that you need to be done with the thing. Right, confession is not simply, okay God, I'm wrong, I'm going to go keep doing it anyway, right? That's not actually confession. That betrays the meaning of the word. Confession is agreeing with God, yes, that you did something wrong, and at the same time that you are agreeing to be done with the thing. Confession includes repentance in it. They go hand in hand. God, I agree with you that this is wrong and that I need to turn away from it. So think about how Aaron would have to prepare for this. Right? He probably had to gather up uh, all the elders in Israel. He may have even had to send them out to the individual people that they resided over to have them go and collect their lists and figure out, okay, what are we really guilty of here? And then he would gather all those elders in and uh, they would bring their lists to him and he would compile it into one big list. I, I mean, it could have taken like four hours of just sitting there reading this list of sins. And so uh, they'd work to fully encapsulate every piece of the baggage that they've been carrying for the last year. And in verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, 
and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. God is saying that every sin that Aaron confesses as his hands are pressed on that goat, every sin gets transferred onto that goat. That's what God says. As he confesses it, it gets transferred onto that goat. What that means is that the goat is kind of like a garbage truck. right? Uh, the baggage that we've been accumulating... When we say baggage, we think of it like luggage, but uh, that's not this kind of baggage, right? It's garbage, right? The baggage is garbage. It's bags of trash. And Aaron comprehensively confesses the sins of Israel. Every sin is another garbage bag thrown into the garbage truck. And so what do we see? From our perspective, Aaron has his hands on the head of this goat and he is just reading a list of sins. That's what we see. But if we had spiritual eyes, we'd see every part of the corruption that we have allowed to exist being transferred from us and from the sanctuary and being like heaping up on that goat. That's what we would see if we had spiritual eyes. And we see this goat carry every ounce of death and corruption and sin. And perhaps now you might start to realize why God would assign a goat to be given to that demon out in the wilderness. Verse 22. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat is led outside of the camp of Israel. Uh, you, we've read this verse before, but we don't think about it often. It happens in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. When the psalmist is writing about that, he's talking about the day of atonement when the goat leaves the camp, goes outside the camp and all the way into the wilderness. So, just so that we are tracking the process, the Day of Atonement process. We've looked at the first three steps. The fourth step is that all the sin, not some of the sin, not a little bit of the sin, but all the sin is carried outside the camp. It feels a little too serious at this point to point out what God is doing, but it's worth noting. So, so demons, they are the catalyst for lies that lead to sin. They are the tempters, right? So we have ownership of what we do, but Satan and his demons created the temptation to sin. They created the lie. And so every time that one of God's people sinned, I can imagine the demons like thinking that they have pulled a fast one on God, right? They're celebrating, they're cheering, right? They're so excited that once again, they got another one of God's people to sin. And so what does God do? Once a year, he forgives his people. And then he sends Azazel a little message. He says, hey, you know what? You think you've done something special, but guess what? I forgive my people. So here's your reward. Take your garbage. Right? He's making fun of them. It's like a joke. He's playing a joke on the demons. He's loading up a garbage truck and sending it out and say, hey, here's what you get for your little celebration. 
that goat, exists to make a mockery of all of the false gods. That's what it exists for. So God gets devotion from his people. God's people get atonement and forgiveness, and the demons get the garbage truck. So from there, what do they do? Well, they have offerings and they fast, and we don't actually get into all of that uh, because uh, we'd be here for a long time. But the key here, the key here is that God was training his people to deal decisively with sin in this way. So church, our main point this morning is this, that God's people confess sin and receive his forgiveness. You can talk about what it means for us to be different than the world. God's people confess sin and receive his forgiveness. That's that's what's different. That's what's otherworldly about us. So verse 34 says, This shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So what? So what? Number one, the primary message of the law. I mean, even calling it the law makes it kind of rough. Like we, we're concerned, oh, I'm going to have to do something to be able to perform for God. And the primary message of the law was about your need to be forgiven. That the primary message of the law written to Jewish people was about their need to be forgiven. Right, the first five of the books of the Bible, the, the, the Torah, right? All our religious impulse is to come to it saying, God, tell me what I need to do to be accepted by you. And so we go to the Ten Commandments or we go to uh, performing certain actions and we say, oh, okay, so if I just do this, it will be enough, right? God, that's what we go. We go to him saying, okay, if I do this, it'll be enough. And at the center of the law is a message that said, if that's where you start, you've already missed the point. God says, our relationship is not about things you do for me. It's about something you need from me. It's about something you need from me. Like we are all sinners who through our kind of role that we've played in the world have given corruption and death a lot of room to go to work. We have a debt that we cannot pay. And no amount of obedience to the Ten Commandments or any other kind of laws will get us to where God is. The only way we get to God is if he comes to us and forgives us because he loves us. That was the central message of the law. That is the central message of the Bible. And it was the central message of Jesus. So what, number two? The Day of Atonement was full of signs pointing to Jesus. Right? Like, they were shadows. Right? This was, the Day of Atonement was not the thing that God was aiming for. God was preparing his people and giving kind of foretelling of what would happen in Jesus. So what was Jesus? Well, number one, Jesus was the better high priest. Right? Aaron made his offering, but Aaron had to make his offering every single year. You know why? Because Aaron was a sinner, and he had to go back and deal with his sin again and again and again. But Jesus 
Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, by the way, can never actually take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus was a better high priest. Right? Jesus' sacrifice only had to be offered once to deal effectively with sin for anyone who trusted him. He was the better demon mocker. Right? The goat became like a garbage truck carrying sin. In the same way, the, the Apostle Peter, he, said, he was one of Jesus' closest friends, a disciple of Jesus' when Jesus was on earth. He said this about Jesus. He said, he became sin who knew no sin. Like the goat, the garbage was piled onto Jesus. And Jesus died outside Jerusalem, outside the camp, bearing our sins. And as he was sent outside the camp, he did not simply take a message to the demons. But when he gave up his last breath, he dealt a crippling blow to the demons. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in so doing, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus entered the better tabernacle. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What it's telling us is that Jesus did not walk into the tabernacle that was built by human hands on this earth. Jesus went into heaven and walked into the throne room of God and used his blood to plead for our sakes. And so then, Jesus accomplished a better atonement. As verse 12 goes on in Hebrews, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And we should read that word redemption as atonement, thus securing an eternal purchasing us back. We have given ourselves over to sin and over to corruption and Jesus came and said, here's my blood, I'm going to purchase them back to myself. So what number three? Confessing and dealing with sin is otherworldly. Don't neglect it. Right, this series is called Not of This World. It's about how God's people are different. So just let me tell you, there was no other religion in Israel's day that cared about dealing with sin. 
Not one pagan religion had any concern with the sin that we accumulate in ensuring that we dealt adequately with it. Every religion had a law, but no religion spoke of a God who recognized sin as debt and made a point to make sure that his people dealt with it. So though we don't now mess with the blood of bulls and goats because Jesus has come and paid with his blood, we still very much do practice confession. Right? So get this. Every time you sin, you accumulate baggage. Every sinful thought pattern is baggage that you've put on yourself. Every habitual sin is baggage. Every idol you worship in your heart is baggage. Every damaging word you speak about another person is baggage. Every lie you believe is baggage. And if you are a believer in Jesus, God has put his Holy Spirit inside of you, which means that you are now his house. He lives in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What did we say at the beginning? God doesn't like it when we store our baggage in his house. So I have a prophetic, prophetic word for some of you. Some of y'all need to take out the trash. Like, I don't know where you're at, but, but some of you are in a place where you are letting garbage pile up. And it's been there for a long time. And you know what happens when you leave a trash bag in one place for a long time? It starts to open up. It starts to rip. It starts to leak into other places in your life. And so... Jesus is saying, hey, I'll come clean you up. Right? Just confess it. Like, I'm here. Confess it. Agree with me that it's wrong. Agree with me that you need to be done with it. And decide to be done with it. Bring it to me. I'll deal with it. I've done everything that needs to be done for it. Just bring it to me. Just name it, right? So let me say if you find yourself running into a particular sin and saying, I'm in a place where I want to be done with this, but I don't know how to be done with this. Right? I'm a pastor. Pastor Don is a pastor. We're not here because we're not the only one people who can help you work through that, but we will take responsibility for getting you connected to somebody who can help you work through that. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. The gift of forgiveness. Lord, that we need not... Lord, every other religion, every other uh, person, every other way of thinking in all of history has created a scenario where we sin and our sin weighs upon us. We carry it like baggage and you come to us and say, all you have to do is confess it and it's dealt with. I remove it. I make you clean. So Lord Jesus, I pray for anybody in this room who is sensing a need pressing upon their heart to be made clean. Holy Spirit, would you lead them to a place of surrender to you? Would you lead us all to a place of surrender to you? To constantly recognize, yeah, we're letting something have a place that it shouldn't have. And then to joyfully lay it down before you.
and receive the forgiveness, the atonement, the redemption that you have to offer us. Pray this in your son's mighty name. Amen.